Welcome to the hashtag blessed version of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your host and moderator, Josiah, and on the show today I got... Alicia. Will. Ryan. Ryan, who is not Byron. No, not Byron. Byron couldn't, ma- Byron couldn't make it with us today. He is celebrating his father's... How old is your father, Will? He is... Um, hold on just a second. 16... <laughs> He's he's sixty two. Sorry, sixty two. Oh, he's sixty two. Favorite son, huh? And... So actually, there's a joke with that too. <laughs> I so yeah. So they they always joke that I'm the favorite child. Of blah blah blah. Whatever. My parents kind of confirm true. it. And anyway, yeah. well, well, Pete. You know, Byron sends us a a thing that says, "Hey, don't forget it's Dad's birthday today." And Pete goes, "Yeah, typical Pete. I put his I put his card in the in the mailbox today." And I said, yeah, typical Will, I'm putting his card, I'm putting mom's birthday card, which was November 15th, in the, in the mailbox tomorrow. And so, so anyway, and I said, how am I the favorite son? <laughs> You've already cashed in all that social capital, yeah. apparently, man. You're I, not, I you're guess. Coast now, huh? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I guess, I guess so. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show today, guys. Uh, and for our listeners, just for the record, this is probably going to be our fall finale or whatever you want to call that. Because we got holidays and family and traveling and lots of fun stuff happening. So we're going to kick it off. This is our short form show where we have millennial pastors. And all of us today, not to disparage Byron, all of us are actually millennial pastors. (laughs) If you don't remember in the past, Ryan has been on the show. You might recognize Alicia and Will from being regulars lately. But all of us today are officially millennial pastors. And we're going to give you hot takes in three different segments that we're going to time to hold ourselves. So are you guys ready to get started? Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Let's go. All right. Segment one. This is going to be fun because uh, me and Will are especially, uh, well, we're having some fun shifts, but I know Ryan and Alicia have some experience with this stuff, too. Segment one. We're going to put the timer on. It's about parsonages. Will, you ready? I am. What did you do last week? What's going on with your life? Um, well, a lot, but one of the things that happened was we broke ground, uh, for a parsonage. So basically we just, we just dug a hole. What does that P word mean, dude? What's that P word mean? I use that word and people look at me funny sometimes. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking as you introduce that segment, like if people aren't pastors, they're going to be like, what in the world are they talking about? Like what, uh, it's is, so a parsonage is basically a perk that pastors can get, can receive. And it's basically a housing is and so a lot of churches used to own houses and they would as part of the the pastor's salary let them and their families live in houses uh that the churches that the church owned so so yeah it's not a lot of churches moved away from that and sold their houses uh sold the parsonages because because of the cost of, of of everything involved with that and 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 now i feel like I don't know. We're kind of in, in between uh, a lot of churches have them and a lot of churches don't. So it's kind of an interesting deal. Well, you're going retro and you're building a parsonage, which is curious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, breaking ground. I'm, I'm going in the opposite direction. I am actually, well, I'm not, we're not selling the parsonage at our church. We had to go through all the polity rules and votes to, to rent out the parsonage because as Byron would say, I have a million children, but we may <laughs> or may not have outgrown the parsonage. And we also like the idea of owning and having equity in the jazz, but Real quickly, and I'll circle back to you, Will. I want to know, Ryan, mm-hmm. do, you, uh, do you live in a parsonage? 
No, but when Megan and I were first married, we lived in a, it wasn't officially a parsonage, it was a house that the church owned, and we did get people who would just randomly stop by, and that was really weird. So, so not officially being a parsonage, meaning it wasn't on the same property as the church, or what do you mean by that? Uh, the house, the church owned it with the intention of building it into um, somewhat of a, like an outreach center. And basically, they were kind of waiting to do that, and they had an empty house, and we were newly married and made no money, and so they let us stay there. Huh. Yeah. And what about you, Alicia? You you live in a parsonage, technically? I do, yeah. So it's a home that the church owns, um, and uh, the previous pastor um, who moved in, I think, in like 2001 or 2002, that's when the church purchased the home. Um, but recently we're moving toward, um, kind of what Ryan was just saying of like using the house as some kind of ministry minded, um, yeah, a a space for ministry and not just for housing. Cause I am not married. I do not have tons of children and this is a four bedroom, three bath house just seems a little extravagant for one person um so and we're we're a tiny church community with not a lot of resources but we do have this home so how can we use that in a way that's more um intentional and effective and um yeah more than just like having empty rooms that are let out to strangers um we're trying to launch like an intentional community so um in support of other young ministers because here in the bay area housing is one of the most prohibitive things for people like that's yeah. that's one of the things that like that's most difficult for churches to um provide fair compensation for their pastors because housing is so expensive it's bonkers Um, my brother just moved there and he was telling me the cost for just a one-bedroom apartment and it was mind-blowing yeah yeah it's an it's insane um and so so especially small communities like or even church plants or new ministries that don't have a lot of financial resources like couldn't afford to pay a pastor a livable wage that included like an appropriate housing allowance to live here um so what if we could figure out a kind of house sharing situation, right, for like other young pastors? So that's that's one of the hopes that we have for for our our parsonage as um, as we explore more of what like ministry looks like in the Bay using our resources really creatively. What's the proximity to your church, uh, parsonage to church? Um, uh, that's a good question. It's maybe like eight miles. It's like on the other side of town. Um, and so, so it's like it's within the city limits of Hayward, but it's not like next door. Um, yeah, it's, it's also this is this is an interesting question because um, we like the typical cookie cutter model of the parsonage is that it like shares property with the church, which, yes. is, which has some drawbacks for sure. You've got people dropping by like unnecessarily. Um, but I don't know. I've got some some qualms about being too far away from the church because I feel like mm. it prohibits a little like a, a really fully invested incarnational ministry model. Yeah. Um, and then and then so like so now I'm living in a parsonage that's on the other side of town, up in the hills, a much nicer neighborhood than the church is in. And it's been recently remodeled. Like it's nicer than anything my congregants would be able to afford. And so how do mm. I feel about that? Like I, I don't know. Well, that, Will's doing the opposite. Will's doing the exact opposite. He's—I mo- I don't know about niceness, but he's moving closer. So, how do you feel about that, Will? 
Yeah, well, see, I think it has to I think it has to go with your community. I I think it should be church based and local church based. And so for us, we feel like it would be like kind of what Alicia was talking about, like just a really good way to be incarnational in our ministry. Our our setting is that we we're, we're a rural church and our and our church was was planted in a place that that kind of we're, we're trying to be in the center. And so it actually is not in a town. It's on the outside of, of a couple town towns, tiny towns, but outside of these towns. And, and so we thought it would be good. It would be nice to have a parsonage there uh, to kind of complement, um, you know, the center of our ministry, you know, outreaching from there. And so, so that's why we're doing it. We, we have about, the other thing is we, we, it's it's rural and and so and so we we purchased a bunch of land with it. I say a bunch. It's not that much. I, I think it's like six acres, or seven acres. Dude, for for what Alicia's living in, six acres is like a, a couple city blocks, right, Alicia? That's a decent. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. See, out here, out here, like six acres is nothing because most of the fields out here are, are you know a quarter mile by a quarter mile squares. So so <laughs> my so last... here it's pretty small. But... My last house was five, on five acres. We lived in a rural community too. And yeah. we actually had to buy farm insurance, even though we had no intention of like, planning a, <laughs> yeah. a crop That's of any legit. kind. So That's crazy. We're, we're over time, but I want to ask Alicia one quick follow-up and maybe Will and, and uh, Ryan, based on what she says. But Alicia, if you could do what Will's doing and, and somehow magically you know, do a Harry Potter and move the house right next to the church, would you do that? Um. Maybe, because uh, there, there are just, like, other questions to sort through as well. I mean, there, like, I, there would need to be, I think, um, I'd want to have some housemates of some kind. Um, my, my church is full of um, a lot of unsheltered folk, a lot of unstable folk, a lot of people who need a lot of stuff from church and are around all the time. Um, and gosh, I like, I like to think of myself as like an independent and strong woman and certainly a feminist, but there are just like some safety concerns about a woman living alone. Like, I'm I'm just going to put that out there. Um, There's there's nothing wrong about saying that. I think it's, it's, it's an apt observation. So, so that like, like this is, this is where the, the questions then come, like, what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be like incarnational, but also like, what does it mean to not be foolish? When does faithfulness become foolishness is like one yeah. of the questions yeah. that I yeah. have, which which then I think maybe can lead us to some other conversations, uh, not just about like personal safety or proximity or whatever, but like attentiveness to the use of our funds and our resources. So, I mean, we did our, our best to work with the, the resources that we have, and that kind of is what it is for the moment. Um, and I... I I do sometimes think like what if we could have done it differently? But Josiah, like you're you're thinking about like reappropriating the financial resources devoted to your parsonage in a way that's yeah. more like fiscally responsible and therefore I it sounds like it might be more faithful. Yeah, so so just to give you my story, the reason we talked about this um really quickly, we might have to we're going over on the segment already and it's typical of us, but <laughs> Um, it's, it, I say it tongue in cheek, we outgrew it, but that there's, it's true, but, um, it's also something that's curious because my church has some, uh, has a past, has a history of just having some financial difficulties and struggles. So some of what we're doing is also trying to make 
uh, steps in a direction to where we can maybe alleviate some of our own overhead and some of our own debts possibly one day and try to make some steps towards helping this smaller church do more with what it has. So renting out the parsonage is doing just that. It affords us the opportunity to potentially, this is actually my end goal, potentially even house someone that needs a house um, that's even from the church at a rate that truly would be cheaper than a regular rental rate in the rest of the town, but still meets the needs of what the church is asking for so it can offset my own housing costs. So there's like a bunch of levels to what we're trying to do. Um, but the, the, the question remains, though, it's a, it's a curious question of borders and boundaries, I guess, because on one hand, I do agree with what Will and Alicia are saying, where, man, I'm going to be further away, and that means I'm going to be that much more disconnected. But at the same time, I have to ask myself, based on what I'm paid and the fact that I have to be focused on children. For our listeners, if, I, if you haven't heard this before, I'm primarily a stay-at-home dad a lot, of the, a lot of the time, so I actually can't be as traditionally pastoral as I would like to be. So there's just interesting questions of, of boundaries and privacy and, and things like that, that that couple with all that. So I, think the, I just don't know. I think the fiscal responsibility is a good thing. Like when we first moved here, we were looking to buy a house and I really wanted to be close to the church. But then I just, we discovered that, you know, if we moved 20 minutes away, as opposed to 10 minutes away, we could buy a bigger house for less money. And we just decided that was more responsible with what we, with our funds. Yep. And with, with us, what it actually does is it, it helps bring in actual regular, I guess, sort of passive income for the church, which is just a really good cushion to have. Because right now, we own the parsonage free and clear. So it's not doing anything other than on paper affording me a housing allowance and being a home for my family. So, But the, the, the difference that would happen is that there will be actual money changing hands. And that obviously changes the game a little bit. But yeah. anyways, we're, we're going way over on time. I'm going to keep talking about my parsonage and stuff if I'm not careful. So let's go to segment two. <laughs> Sound fun? Let's do it. Mm-hmm. I might actually bring back some fun border dis- or boundary discussion because segment two is Ryan. You ready? Yeah. Ryan, how often do you uh, go to your Starbucks office versus your regular office? A lot. I was just at Starbucks today. It's my day off. It's your day <laughs> <laughs> So, So why do you go to the Starbucks office, if you're honest? Um, I just don't like sitting in a room by myself. That's my, probably my biggest thing. Is it? Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also sometimes can you get stuff done a little more efficiently? I feel like I can. Um, mostly just because like I'm a person like just being around people, like even if I'm not actually interacting with them, just makes me more productive. I don't know how. Being alone in a room that like, just makes energy, me more yeah. and more distracted. Like I just think it's- of every other thing that I could be doing. If I want to, if I want to get stuff done, I don't go to my church office. <laughs> I go, I go somewhere else. And I don't tell anybody if I want to be around people and interact, I go to my church. Um, when, the, cause we actually have a coffee shop that, that is operated in it sometimes, which is cool. Another fiscal thing that we're trying to work towards, but, uh, it's curious. Do you ever get grief for, for going to Starbucks, especially around this time of year, Ryan? No. You remember a couple of years ago, right? The whole, oh, they took Merry Christmas off their cups. So they're obviously like the coffee of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be a little extreme, but yes, I remember the... I mean, the, some people have some feelings about the it. The outrage. Though. I feel like it's like every year, though, at this point. 
<laughs> yeah, every year. So what about you, Will, uh, Alicia? Do you have any – I mean, Starbucks is just one example of, like, the war of Christmas or the – what is it called? The war on Christmas? Is that what yeah. it's called by everybody? I think so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you hear our president say it all the time. We're going to say Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays. I had – it was very clearly – in response to that, because I kid you not, I had someone assault me with Merry <laughs> Christmas at the store. So I don't know if any of you guys have had a similar experience. Alicia, have you had anything similar to where this sweet old lady grabs you by the arm and forces you to stare at her while she says, Merry Christmas? <laughs> have you ever had that happen to you? Uh, no, never. I can say <laughs> definitively never. Okay, good. What about you, Will? Have you ever had that happen? No, but I'm sure that my Christmas would be merrier if it <laughs> So, okay, uh, I'm going to do quick rounds of questions. Um, I, do you, I, I hear it still, even in my congregations. Do you hear it as well, Ryan, this need to, like, fight the war to reclaim Christmas? Do you hear that in your congregations? Not really. I mean, I, I kind of quit paying attention to it a couple of years ago. So maybe I've just re- going repressed it, and I don't know. I just, I just feel like there's just so many more important things to worry about with my, my life and time. Sure. Do you hear about, do you hear any of those murmurings, Alicia, in your circles? Honestly, not really. We're, we're in a pretty secular and pretty diverse area. Um, so I, yeah, it's just not really a concern so much around me. Um, yeah. What about you, Willard? No, uh, we don't hear about it very often. I think the one, the, the twist on it might be, and it's not really like it's not framed in a war on Christmas, but it it is a little bit of the same thing, sort of. Uh, the the twist on it would be uh, like like the reason for the season, like Jesus is the reason for the season. Like I see that sometimes. I see it on cars and things like that in our area, but I don't hear like war on Christmas stuff. Yeah. So let's let's take it to the next level because the the other interesting thing that I see happen in Christmas and uh, once upon a time someone brought it to my attention. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Advent conspiracy. Um, yeah. Uh, so the Advent conspiracy is really cool. It's all about trying to bring clean water to the world, and like, what if Christmas still changes the world, and we could be a part of it? Because we spend literally an unChrist-like amount of money <laughs> celebrating Jesus. So I think America, and and uh, I hope one of you know this stat because I saw from Advent conspiracy recently, we spent something like seven hundred and fifty billion dollars on ourselves last Christmas. That sounds about Maybe. right. I think I, I feel like I've heard similar numbers before. It, needless to say, like the Ava conspiracy set says that if we spent like, I don't, it's something insignificant compared to what we spend. Or, or it's less than a percent of that. It's it's some tiny number. If we spent some tiny number of that on other people, we could solve the world's water crisis. But oh, every year, we fight this whole thing where it's like, oh no, you better say Merry Christmas instead of how. Well, apparently, not all of you experience that. Maybe it's just me, and I live in a weird spot or something. But. In the name of Jesus, we spend a, an ungodly amount of money on all these things, and there are people around the world going thirsty. I don't, it, I don't know what could be more. It sounds similar ironic. to. Um, have any of you guys ever heard of Christian Smith? No, I don't He's think a so. Sociologist, sociologist of religion. He's my favorite sociologist. Yes, that I am not compared. Mm. Is that a long <laughs> list of yours? Like um, the top ten sociologists. There's, there's a couple on the list. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> Ron Benefield's mine, but that's, oh, yeah. you know. Ronnie B. He's the only uh, one I know. So. Uh, he's Nazarene. He, um, I know, man. Christian Smith did a, he did a lecture, I don't know, man, it must have been 10 years ago by now. But um, basically, like, if every Christian 
in America who every person who claims to be a Christian in America actually tithe ten percent. Like we would do more than we would like not only solve the water crisis, we would solve world hunger. We would solve like poverty in like eighty percent of the world. And like mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, that is convicting for sure. Mm. <laughs> totally. It's super convicting, but I can't help but hear because I've had these conversations and I'll preach a sermon about stuff like that. And sometimes people will say, that's really idealistic though. That's just overly idealistic as if, you know, that, that in and of itself should make it self-defeating to even talk about, which is troublesome, but it's also maybe the slight against our generation. Um, I don't know, but have you guys heard also that Gen Z is going to set records for their generosity and the things that they want to contribute to and, and, and to take on some of these problems. Have you guys heard some of those numbers coming out? I have not, but that's exciting. Yeah. Way to go. I mean, I, I wish they would say that about millennials. I wish we were the most generous I mean, generous we were. Generation. We were actually. So the philanthropy, we were setting, we were setting trends as being the most uh, generous, but then it sounds like Gen Z is projected to maybe even overtake us. So, hey, maybe, maybe we... Listen, we've... We've done our job. We've set <laughs> yeah. a good example. Right? And and we can say, I guess, Merry Christmas aggressively along the way. <laughs> oh, my Lanta. Yeah, I, so I we'll think, see what happens. I, I just want to okay. say, like, I think there's, like, so much, like, theology in that, like, mindset of, like, oh, well, that's just too optimistic. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like there's so much being said there without being said. Like, as Christians, I feel like we should be shooting for that. You know, if we declare the kingdom of God where poverty and hunger and thirst isn't a thing anymore, we should be shooting for yeah, that. Yeah, should, shouldn't we be the ones with the most ridiculous yeah. imagination? Like, shouldn't we mm. be the ones that, like, imagine a world that doesn't yet exist and live into that reality? Okay. Or that's, that sounds like, like already but not yet or reality? <laughs> so so Jesus, Jesus in Luke 4 is reading, and, he, and he's like, this is good news for the oppressed. Si- uh, blind will receive sight and, you know, all these things, right, in, in, in Nazareth. And then Nazareth tries to kill him. So I definitely preached on that. I'm like, wow, the audacity Jesus has to say this stuff, right? <laughs> it's almost like he was a millennial. Or and I totally dropped it. <laughs> and everyone laughed a little bit. And then they actually sat there and wondered because people wanted to kill him after he was that. Mm-hmm. So did they take you to a cliff? Yeah. <laughs> I and, joked about and how it. How did you I disappear? Said, because I want to know. I said, I said, hey, guys, there's no cliffs around. So don't get any funny ideas. But um <clears throat> that's it for a second Le- what were you gonna say Alicia <laughs> just just one parting thought this is my subversive response to the people who are mad about the Starbucks cups okay I tell them take. well this is a this is a great opportunity for you to bring your own and reduce Reuse your own for Christmas <laughs> oh man my, my and it can say right Merry there. Christmas on it <laughs> yeah I know you can hand paint I it say, I say, let's get a reusable cup that says Merry Christmas, and then you can bring and it with you it every single too. time. Wow. Get it. Get it. Wow, that's, that's oh, next level. God. Listen, if, if that's the thing that gets you to stop using reusable cups, get it. I'll support your delusion. <laughs> hot takes. Millennial pastor, hot takes. All right. I will support Segment your three. delusion. There you go. Se- I like it. Segment three. <laughs> on that note, Alicia, you're starting us off on segment three because you, you left off that hot take. We're going to get it with segment three. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Yeah. For our listeners, we try to get a little more serious and theological with segment three. And uh, Alicia's going to start off. Alicia, um, you might be, I don't know if you're the most, but at least on this podcast, I would assume you are the most well-versed in the Enneagram. 
Um, so can you give me the briefest synopsis of what it is? And then also after you explain it, tell me what you are. Okay, so the Enneagram is a, I think, like, the most simple way to talk about it is a personality typing tool. And, I mean, we've heard of others like Myers-Briggs and StrengthsFinder, these systems that give us language to talk about who we are, how we behave, how we process the world, um, what our motivations are, those sorts of things. Um, And they've all had like seasons of popularity in different cultures. Like I think, I think that Myers-Briggs was pretty popular among like corporate America and team building exercises. I remember StrengthsFinder being really popular when I was a college student. Like that was really like in vogue at the time. My first job, Um, I had to take it when I was a youth pastor. They had to know my strengths. Yeah, and and it does it does seem like Enneagram is making a comeback with like the publication of a couple of books and some podcasts and even some like Instagram accounts and blogs and those kinds of things. And it seems to have become really popular among millennial mm. evangelicals. Mm. Hey, um, what's in your Instagram profile right now, Alicia? <laughs> speaking of millennial, right? So, okay. On my Instagram profile, my little like like about me section does list my Enneagram number, That's right. which is um, uh, the Enneagram is a number typed system. So the the Myers Briggs has like four dichotomies, right? And the Enneagram has nine numbers, um, and each of them has like a tagline and descriptions and those kinds of things. So um, I'm an Enneagram type nine, which is the peacemaker. Um, the, the one is the reformer, uh, two is the helper, three is the achiever, four is um, the romantic or the artist, the individualist, people call that, name that one differently, five is the investigator, um, six is the loyalist, seven is the enthusiast, eight is the challenger, um, yeah, and then nine, the peacemaker. So you're the peacemaker. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I feel like there's so much to say about the Enneagram and I feel like I'm not doing it justice, but that's okay. Personal personality system. But really like the key thing about the Enneagram is it helps you name your key motivations. Um, uh, because people can have similar behaviors, but from very different motivations. Right. Um, so Uh, For example, you get an invitation in the mail to a Christmas party and um, the night the night of comes around and you decide you're not going to go. Right. But that could be that could be because you're um, afraid of the of the conflict that might happen if you see your ex (laughs) or you're you're just like too tired and you don't want to deal with people or you get you get like like guilt tripped into staying and helping with uh with the, the neighbor's kids next door right like like you could decline the invitation for various reasons and um the enneagram helps pinpoint some of those motivations or the impulses behind the way people respond to the world or process things um, so my question to you I, is 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 not i'm going to shift gears from enneagram because i think the enneagram is really interesting it's it's this really curious tool that helps you know yourself a little bit better, but it's kind of yeah. It's kind of just a, a perfect example of this concept idea of is all truth God's truth, because because mm-hmm. very recently um, the enneagram was catching flack in some of our NAS circles, 
And basically, it was because of where it came from or who invented it or who developed it or whatever. And it, it is not overtly Christian in origin, according to these sources that this person was sharing. And that's just like a thing that could be, you know, argued based on history that people find on Google and Wikipedia. And, oh, well, I found this at Wikipedia. That's it's just a futile endeavor for me. But my question to you, Alicia, and then I'm going to ask Ryan and. It actually looks like we lost Will, so hopefully oh, he joins Will, back on. Will, come back. Oh, if he doesn't, we're going to finish without him. <laughs> he, can, he can join in uh, afterwards or something. But uh, it, is, there, is there something to be said about uh, using things that are good despite the overt Christian nature? Like, we've had this discussion before with Kanye and, and Christian artists and all that sort of a thing, but this is more a question of truth. Um, is the discovery of truth something that, that needs to be pursued with or without any concern as to whether the people doing the discerning of truth are Christian. Like what, what do you think about that, Alicia? Um, I, I think I would turn to Colossians and um, the, the Christology present in that letter really points to the way that in Christ, all things are held together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm a firm believer that God is the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. And so that when we discover things that are good and true and beautiful, uh, we can name God as the giver of that, the source of that. Um, and, and so the, the Enneagram sure has some diverse origins, um, but it has also been from very early on identified um, by core Christian communities. The Jesuits, for example, um, really used it as a as a tool in training spiritual directors. A spiritual director is somebody who helps um, helps others pay attention to how God is moving in their life, to like name the ways that they're hearing from God and seeing God and, uh, and respond faithfully. Um, so that the Enneagram was a, was a tool used for centuries and centuries by Jesuits in their like spiritual direction training. Um, and it didn't like trickle out into the mainstream until like, uh, like relatively recently, the, the mainstream Western culture, I should say. Um, but Anyway, uh, like I just use that example to say that that there have been faithful followers of Jesus um, who have noticed the ways that this could be a useful tool. And they've been seeing that and practicing that for ages. Um, and and so for me, I don't really care where it's come from. Um, <laughs> OK, so well, fun, <laughs> so, so fun, much, fun, yeah. fun, fun exercise. And I think Will's back. Will, are you actually back? Yeah, I'm here. Did you close out your app again, Will? No, no, my phone died. <laughs> oh, okay, fun times. So I'm going to start with you, Will. Fun exercise, and I'm going to circle back to Alicia. Um, sure. Will, do you ask if your mechanic's Christian before you let him fix your car? Always. Always. <laughs> yeah. Actually, actually, I say, can I see your ID? Is there a, Christian, uh, is there a Cairo on your uh, ID, please? Is the, is the fish sticker on the back of your, your yeah. shop truck? Um, so I'll take yeah. that as a no. Yeah, but, um, I, but if they – no, no, I don't do that, but – but if they don't say Merry Christmas, I go to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ryan, does your barista, do you ask them if they're a Christian before they make you coffee? No. I mean, so, uh, and then the, the conversation can continue. And Alicia, I'm going to direct this back to you. There's been so much made of, so like recently science, somewhat recently, do you, I don't know if you recall the Ken Ham, Bill Nye the Science Guy thing. Like <sighs> suddenly there were people that were having to make decisions in some circles because 
I think all of us grew up with elementary and middle school educations that involved Bill Nye the Science Guy at some point, mm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but at some point he outed himself as atheist, and we had to wonder if we could like him anymore. Um, and this is a curious conversation because it also it also bleeds into other other issues of of mentorship and professors. All of us, except for Will, um, shared a professor that had a fall from grace experience. And then you, I, I read countless reflections in countless uh, times where people said, well, can I actually take to heart anything that I was taught from this person? Because they had a lapse in morals. They had a moral failure. And so it's a question of can truth stand alone on its own, despite the person discovering, teaching, uh, I don't know, formulating, developing it. And it's just a curious question because I feel like the history of the church is ripe with, oh, well, our Christian scientists say this. That's why we believe the earth is the center of the universe and it's flat. And we mm-hmm. still have that. Some people think that today. So when, <laughs> when, when, uh, when the Enneagram stuff comes out and that's the recent thing, like uh, wh- what are other things maybe aside from the Enneagram that, that you see the same, well, is it really truth? Because did it come directly from the Bible or God? Are there any other things that, that uh, come up as well, Alicia, in your circles? Have you experienced any other pushback on things? Well, oh, that's not overtly Christian. That's not very truthful then. Hmm. Yeah, honestly, again, I feel like maybe I'm the naysayer in this panel, but most of the folks I'm having conversations with are like coming to faith from pretty secular and open context right so there there's a lot less concern about like well is this christian or is this not um and a lot of my pastoral work often comes in like naming something as explicitly christian in Mm -hmm. practice like we don't we don't just like gather for a moment of mindfulness or meditation like no we're going to actually pray to the triune god right like like so so my my work is really like from the opposite direction and less about like concern about apologetics yeah like that sort of stuff but i mean like like i mean my parents are a very different situation like my mom will tell me anytime she's like met a new like or like gone to see a new doctor oh by the way and he's a christian so he's a good one i just like i just i mean obviously he passed medical school and has a reputable practice (laughs) so like that's really all that i care about (laughs) well it's just a question of absolute truth sometimes right yeah. Yeah. Or, um, but it, it is funny to see like how that attitude has filtered down. So my sister is quite far from God, hasn't been to church in years and years and, and doesn't at all want anything to do with it. But she was telling me a couple weeks ago about this guy she has a crush on and she's like, oh yeah, and he's a Christian. So that should count for something. And I was like, well, have you changed your mind yeah. about how you feel about that? <laughs> like, I'm concerned about like, that. Because I'd be concerned about that too. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know why I said yeah. that. And I was like, oh, huh. It's, it's just, yeah, anyway. So what, what about you, uh, Ryan? Is there any absolute truth uh, debates about whether a thing can actually be truth based on whether the person teaching, sharing, developing it is Christian? I think there's something to be said for for the messenger of anything. I mean, you should be mindful of somebody's motives and biases and some of that. Sure. Uh, but this is the time where I'm going to bring up um, a couple years ago. You can look it up on YouTube. It's like a two-hour presentation Rob Bell did uh, called Everything is Spiritual. And whatever you think about Rob Bell today, it's fine. I mean, um, he. I think the underlying thesis really affected me. Um, basically his whole argument is if 
if we say that God is the father of truth and we find truth in other areas like science or even in other religions, we have to say that it's God's truth still. And that um, we can, we can separate that there is truth amongst other things as well. Um, And that takes some maturity and it takes some kind of thinking outside of just your worldview to kind of embrace that idea. And, and some serious humility, I would say. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that's a whole other can of worms we could open with Rob Bell. I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid temptation. Though. So, <laughs> Will, Will, what about you? What what's uh what's an example of a thing that's the you know the manifestation of this discussion of truth or absolute truth or relative truth in your neck of the woods? Sure, or the plains or the six acres. Yeah, <laughs> I would say that it has. I I kind of want to be careful because I want to be gracious. Um. I would say in a lot of ways it has very little to do with Christianity and has more to do with politics. And, and Mm. so, and, and and I say, I need to say this graciously because some folks around here still haven't figured out how to, how to separate those two. You haven't figured out that those two actually are very separate. And, and so, so like to be conservative doesn't mean to be Christian. Um, so, so anyway, so I, I hear it more on that, on like a political level than I do like a, this is a Christian level. So like, for instance, if anything, if anybody says anything against, against Donald Trump, you know, there's, there's going to be folks in, in our area, in my area who will be like, well, we can't, you know, here's a, for instance, Robert De Niro said something one time against Trump and this, and the person responded, well, I don't need to watch Robert De Niro movies anymore. I'm like, well, what in the world do Robert De Niro movies have to do with like his opinion on politics? Like who cares what Robert De Niro thinks mm-hmm. about politics? You know, like I, you know, I, I, I just don't get, I just don't get that. So, so I see the, the sentiment, but what I see here is that, that political argument, like if anything is said against my president, then, then I can't, you know, then I'm, are you even Christian? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Are you even a Christian? Cause that's, we're going to equivalent those two things. Those are going to be on the same level. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. <clears throat> well, I don't know. I don't know how we progress from that because I think in our own circumstances in our own cir- circles and Alicia, you're not the naysayer. We just round out a div- diverse, uh, context of people in different circles um <laughs> mm. and i think that's good that's why i love some of our panel discussions but um our timer's up i'm gonna ask for one final reflection because before we do that can the... i can i insert something so sure. um alicia <laughs> would you be able to tell people like how do you figure out more about the enneagram because i have no idea where to even start oh well i would recommend taking a test online um and you can you can find a couple of like free ones or there's one that you can pay like a few dollars for. Um, and I would recommend just starting there. And that's almost like process of elimination um, because, again, uh, the, the Enneagram is really about your core motivations, not about external behaviors. Um, so like in these like quick rapid fire multiple choice kind of questions, like that's kind of hard to suss out. Uh, but the, the test will filter it, filter it for you and give you your, your like top three numbers. And then I would suggest picking up a book like The Road Back to You. 
Um, that's by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile. Um, and that's like a really accessible, brief introduction with like a chapter on each type. And so then like pick your 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 top few numbers and then read those chapters and see what really mm. resonates with you. Um, and then I would say uh, continue to follow up. I find podcasts really helpful or some like interviews and conversations with folks. So um, the road back to you, that book has a podcast that's really um, helpful and good. And um, the liturgists has an Enneagram episode that's uh, really compelling and really good to listen to. And anyway, so like you, you continue to hear other people talking about um, what it's like for them to identify as this particular number and to interact with others who identify a different way. Um, that's great. Yeah, that would that would be my like my first few steps. Take a test, get a book, listen to a podcast. Maybe we'll even put it on our Facebook page, or maybe Alicia can put some links on the <laughs> on the Twitters and the, and the <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, Alicia's uh, Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, uh, Alicia's hot takes <laughs> that, that some people are not going to like. That might help you know yourself better. So with with that being said, guys, I'm looking at the time and guys and gals. I keep doing that. I'm sorry, Alicia. Um, we're we're gonna have to wrap wrap up today episode this is the the fall what is it called finale that's the one fall finale we'll be back Mm. maybe at the beginning of january but final thoughts we're taking a sabbatical that's in pastor terms yeah (laughs) sabbatical for the holidays but and we'll be back in our parsonages in january back (laughs) parsonages in january but final thoughts uh with kind of what alicia was saying what some of us were echoing as well we really are audacious enough to believe this Jesus guy uh, came and did what he did and invite us to be a part of the redemptive work that, uh, that he was sent here to, to do. Then, then this time of year is not just a, hey, December 25th came and went, and now that's it. The story is over. But we as, as Christ followers are invited to be part of the story of redemption. So we should dream big. We should be fearless. We shouldn't operate out of fear and be vindictive and and hate stores because they don't write the title of the seasons correctly and because we don't like the person that started the thing to help you know your that stuff is just sometimes silly and and a waste of our time but what is a good use of our time is considering how we can be part of that redemptive work maybe it is uh contributing to clean water products uh projects to help give people water maybe it's reusable cups with merry christmas painted on it maybe it is any number of these things but my challenge to you, all you listeners, is consider what this season of Advent, this anticipation of the birth of the Savior, could spur you and inspire you to do to contribute to the redemptive work that God's people, the church, is called to be a part of. And we, as the millennial pastors on this podcast, would also like to just say, we hope that this Christmas season is great. Amen. That's it. We're done. Uh, That'll preach. That'll preach. We're on. We're on. The, we're preach. on the social medias. We're on Twitter, Facebook. We're on all that stuff. Check out our long form. We're gonna have one more long form episode, uh, maybe coming out next week. We'll see. Mm. It depends on editing. Hey, but... just Josiah, did you say Christmas season? Because it's still Advent, bro. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> the, never negotiate with a liturgist. I'm sorry. All right. So, anyways, we're done. This has been the hashtag Blessed Version of Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your host, moderator Josiah, and today we had. Someone was on here. Alicia. That was me first. Alicia, yeah, that's me. I didn't know I was first. We had Alicia and then Will. And Ryan. And Ryan, not Byron. Thanks for listening. It's been enjoyable. We'll see you in the new year. Peace. All right. Peace. It's over.
Thank you.